One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And welcome to Caged In Presents Copla Connections, as ever brought to you by the Breadcrumbs Collective and hosted by me, Petros Pat Silvers. This is episode 41, and I've got to admit, it's a big one for me. Uh, I've got a guest on this week's episode that, um, I, while I rarely ever kind of put lists together of dream guests, bar the entire Coppola family obviously uh, but this is one of them uh, Sean Fennessy who you may recognize from the big picture uh, the rewatchables podcast the prestige tv pod he's he's fantastic he's over there at the ringer just kind of putting together these amazing podcasts and somebody who I've listened to for so long and I just kind of uh, really really love everything that Sean does and I I don't know, it's, it's felt, it felt like a weird experience for me in, in the fact that you listen to people and you almost like get a sense of who they are. And it, it, it definitely helped the conversation to some degree. It's like I knew the touch points that, that, that Sean is familiar with, having listened to hundreds of hours at this point of him on the big picture, especially. And uh, the, the rewatchables to some degree as well, just kind of knowing the references he knows, knowing how much he's got this love for the new hollywood um yeah the the movie brats and stuff like that so he, he was the perfect guest for this podcast and i'm i'm absolutely delighted that he agreed to to join me like when i sent him an email being like hey sean i know that you you're a you're a fan of 80s coppola work come and talk about a film that you probably don't get to talk about and uh, i think originally i pitched tucker the man in his dreams and sean said hey i really want to talk about gardens of stone and uh, yeah, we really get into it on this one. We kind of talk about where Coppola was at that time, kind of stuff that happened in his personal life, what the state of the kind of movie brats as a whole was like. And um, even down to like James Kahn and uh, Angelica Houston, kind of where this sits in their filmographies. And it made for a really fun, interesting conversation. And I'm sure you will really enjoy it obviously as ever we will be spoiling this film we kind of uh yeah leave no stone unturned pun intended there um so if you haven't seen this film i really recommend picking it up on a beautiful indicator blu-ray that's been released which has got this amazing francis ford coppola interview from 2018 and me and sean discuss it in this chat 
And yeah, it's a, it's a fantastic set and uh, indicator. As always, put out these amazing Blu-rays and this is definitely one of them. Uh, if not, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just listen to the conversation anyway. It's, this, this is a great one. It's a, a massively underseen Francis Ford Coppola film when we get into, does it work? Does it not? Uh, li- have a listen and find out. So I guess all that's left to do is to rail against the Vietnam War, take a new recruit under your wing as we head to the Arlington National Cemetery and make some Coppola connections. Today we're joining the old guard, the toy soldiers, whose guns don't fire, whose bayonets don't fix, the kabuki theatre of the American army, as we look at Francis Coppola's 1987 drama film, Gardens of Stone, written by Ronald Bass, based on a book by the same name, by Nicholas Prophet. Film stars James Kahn, Angelica Houston, James L. Jones, and D.B. Sweeney. Joining me in the battalion today to see if the Coppola family are the greatest film family of all time or deserve to be stripped of their medals and court-martialed is a man you may have heard on the Ringer's Big Picture podcast, The Rewatchables, or the Prestige TV pod. Sean Fennessy, how are you today, sir? Hi, sir. So delighted to be here and um, make some big decisions about one of the great <laughs> film families of all time. <laughs> well, we've got, we've got, two, we've got two, two of them uh, involved in the same film, right? I guess Angelica and the Houstons can be considered... Let's not forget James Kahn and Scott Kahn, of course. Uh, <laughs> of a course. legacy all their own. <laughs> definitely, definitely. Well, um, before, before we get into talking about the film, um, yeah, all, all, the, all, all, all things Coppola, tell, tell us a little bit about what you do on the big picture specifically. It's a podcast I absolutely love. Oh, that's, that's very kind of you. Well, one, I'm, just, I'm really happy to be here to talk to you about this movie that I never get a chance to talk about. Um, on the show that I host, we don't really talk about movies like this, which are deeply uh, underseen, little seen, smaller films um, from great filmmakers. I try my best on the show to shed some light on some of them, but um, it's, it's a contemporary movie podcast about new releases uh, that features conversations with me and my co-host Amanda Dobbins and our pal Chris Ryan and a number of other folks who work at The Ringer, which is a sports and pop culture media company that is now owned and operated by Spotify. We make a lot of podcasts. <laughs> we have a website. Um, and the big picture, you know, if you, I have long conversations with filmmakers about new releases. The show has kind of expanded over time to become much more gamified, much more historically minded. We try to talk about our favorite filmmakers, Coppola, of course, being one of them. Um, and celebrate what we like and get a little bit weird in the process. Um, this is the kind of movie, though, that we don't usually get a chance to talk about too much because <laughs> it's kind of hard to see, kind of hard to find, doesn't have a big reputation. But here we are on this show, which I'm very excited about. Yeah, the amount of people who I've mentioned this film to and they kind of blank expressions. Do you know what I mean? You go, God is a stone? Like, God's for Goblin, 1987. <laughs> I, 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 think, I think a lot of the movie brats kind of, you can pick out a, a film from, any of those kind of guys, like especially their 80s output, and kind of say, like, I don't know, uh, Spielberg. Always? Did he direct Always? Or something he, like did. That? he did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Always. And people go, just, I, I even doubted myself. Do you know what I mean? And it is a kind of, yeah, it's an 80s Spielberg film. I think that's a great comparison. I feel like Gardens of Stone is 
the always in his filmography and Coppola's filmography, but always even is is a bigger and more well-known film than this film. This is part of the like let's let's go behind the curtain. You asked me to come on the show and you said I heard you talk about um 80s Coppola on a pod once mm-hmm. and you suggested Tucker Man in His Dream, which is a very very good film that, yes. that Coppola made. Um that was a, a kind of a lifelong dream of his to make a film about this guy who you can see this ma- major kind of you know, reflection of his yes. aspirations mm-hmm. and his big dream, his ambition. And um, Gardens of Stone is not that. <laughs> it's, a, <laughs> it's a totally different kind of film, totally. So it seems like sort of a paycheck job, but is a deeply melancholy movie and comes at this very curious time in history, reflecting on history that had come 15, 20 years before it. And it's a real curio. I mean, it's an authentically unknown movie from one of the 10 most significant American directors of the last 50 years. So that's so interesting that this even exists yeah. in this, and has this reputation or lack thereof. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll say this up top. Uh, there's actually an amazing Blu-ray that's been put out by Indicator that I like from looking at it, it's region unlocked as well. So like, I think anyone can, yeah, anyone can buy it and, and watch it. And that's like the, the fact I saw that was a thing. I was a bit like, okay do you know what I mean like this that and, and again they're quite a curio label as well so like that was a kind of mark of like oh, this is probably a bit a bit a bit different do you know what I mean a bit not not I don't know not not I'll not just say big... I love I love indicator indicator uh-huh. is an incredible line anybody who's ever heard me on pods knows that I'm a bit of a physical media obsessive and uh yeah. <laughs> filling out my my copla collection with gardens of stone when they read i don't know when they issued, they issued this like 18 or 19 a few years ago and um, 2018 yeah 18 yeah and uh it's a beautiful restoration of the movie you know uh-huh. the, the it looks great it like the only time i had ever seen this prior to getting that my hands on that copy was seeing it on cable growing up i think it was i think it had a little bit of an hbo run in the early 90s and as I recall, it kind of looked like shit. It was very muddy. <laughs> and it had that kind of like that 80s film stock quality of grayness. Yes. And this is a very dour movie at times, so it's not inappropriate. But um, that indicator is phenomenal. It has great pictures. It has a wonderful um, booklet, interview with, a new interview with Coppola talking about the making of the movie, which he hardly remembers, which is also a fascinating thing. There's so much about this movie that is interesting. Yes. Well, before yeah, before we get too deep into talk about the film, let me ask you about like your knowledge of the Coppola family and like specifically like who was your entry point and when did it kind of I don't know like the the gates open then you realize oh there's a whole heap of them. That's a good question. So I think so. I'm 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 going to be forty this year. So my first memory of the idea of the Coppola clan was probably The Godfather Part Three, mm-hmm. um, which you know, came out in 1990. And I remember there being a lot of hubbub around the film, largely because of the controversy of Sofia Coppola's performance and the idea of nepotism and the idea of this great filmmaker inserting daughter into this significant role in the film. And I hadn't seen The Godfather at that point. I think I was just, I probably just saw the cover of Entertainment Weekly that my mom subscribed <laughs> to and, and probably found my way into it that way. And then a couple of years later, I think Bram Stoker's Dracula is the first Coppola movie that I really wanted to see. Yeah. And I probably saw The Godfather shortly thereafter, maybe 11 or 12 years old. I caught it on AMC, probably, before airing it. They aired it hundreds and hundreds of times in the States. So, um, but I think Godfather Part Three is when I became aware of the concept of probably even powerful families in movies. You know, and then you start to make those 
you draw the line from Kirk Douglas to Michael Douglas, you know, and you you start to see that their lineage is such a significant part of this creative industry and that you know, we were even just talking before we started about this journey that you're on with, you know, <laughs> tying together all these strands of connectivity through marriage and, you know, through divorce and through stepchildren and how widespread it is. But the Coppola's in particular, they share their artistry. You know, you can see Francis bringing his kids on the set of Apocalypse Now had an impact on them, you know, and, and yeah, yeah, casting yeah. his sister in a film had it, you know, expands the palette of, of this, this major creative family. So I don't know. I, I, it, it, on the one hand, as a, as a recent father, I love the idea of like giving your kids something that is important to you, like your work. Yeah. On the other hand, I think it makes people kind of queasy. Yeah. I, I've said it before on this podcast, which I find like quite funny is seems to be an entertainment. Like it's an icky thing, but like, it's a mark of like, like if you find out, oh, that bistro, like it's been in the family years. It's like a mark of like greatness. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, whereas yeah. if, if you'd kind of trained your son up from a, or your, your daughter from a young age to kind of move into the family business, whether that is being a director, which I imagine like, like you're saying, being on the set of apocalypse now and kind of, three months old being like the baby and the godfather having that experience what what else are you going to do if that's all you know do you know what i mean if kind of dinner parties are or dinners are kind of discussing scripts and stuff like that that's going to eke into you whereas yeah if, if you're a carpenter and your dad's kind of doing that in the work shed and you get interested as a kid like you're surely going to grow up to do that yeah i think there is the myth of meritocracy in the arts, especially the mainstream arts, uh-huh. that I think, and I, maybe this is just an American thing, you tell me, but people want to get behind the person they've never seen before that didn't yes. have a leg up. But the truth is, and like we've seen this now, I assume you're a fan of Sophia's films, but I mean, yeah, Sophia yeah. has now proven herself to be like a pretty a, a stellar film artist, yes. you know, with a real point of view, a real style. You know, she's t- there, there are like things you can criticize her films for which are obviously kind of endemic to her experience as a person. But um, I love her movies. And oh. I think there is, I, I don't know if my daughter will turn out to be a mediocre <laughs> or above podcaster. <laughs> um, I suspect that being around me a lot and having to hear me blather on, she'll pick up a few things. Yes. And yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I don't think there's a, I don't think there's anything bad about that. I mean, I think the legacy of Hollywood is a legacy of families in many ways. So, you know, this, they're the Warner brothers, not, not Mr. Warner. You know what I mean? So I, I don't think there's, an, there's, there's anything necessarily inherently bad about it. Definitely. Well, let's, let, yeah, you, you've obviously interviewed a lot of like, directors and filmmakers. Have you ever spoke to a Coppola at all, Sean? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I've, I've interviewed Sophia um, on The Big Picture. Uh, she joined, actually, a very rare interview in which my co-host Amanda joined me in the interview. Amanda doesn't love to sit for the director interviews, but she, she worships, worships at the altar of Sophia. So when On the Rocks was released a couple of years ago, we, we did that together. And she was lovely. Um, she gave us a lot of her time and she was insightful. I'm trying to think. I mean, I've met Jason Schwartzman in, in, in passing in private. I, I don't, I've never interviewed him for any particular reason. I'm trying to think. Never spoken to Cage. Never spoken to Francis. I've made my bid for Francis and I would still love <laughs> to speak to Francis. Um, but I have not spoken with him. Certainly haven't spoken to... Talia Shire, haven't spoken to Roman. I've seen Roman dining many times in Los Angeles. We, nice. we frequent some of the same haunts. Um, 
gosh, I'm trying to rack my brain. You know, the the younger cohort like Gia and folks like that, I haven't, I have not never spoken with. Um, who, who am I forgetting? I mean, you're the expert on this. Oh, uh, yeah. No, the, 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 there's like a, I don't know, Chris Copler. Have you said a guy kind of waltzing around LA who kind of looks like a, looks like a pirate? A bit like <laughs> Nick Cage. Have not, have not spoken with Chris. No, no. Oh, that's, uh, yeah, you're missing out. He's, he's, he's a lovely gentleman. Uh, right. So, what would have been, yeah. So, I think I've, well, I think you've already answered this uh, with Bram Stoker's Dracula being your first Copler film. Is that right? I think, well, it's certainly the one that I remember getting excited about, mm-hmm. you know, that was sold to me on television, that I saw on magazine covers. That was a big event movie at the time. And, I don't know what, if I actually saw it in the, the fall that it was actually released. Because like I said, I was only 10. It was a fairly violent film. Maybe <laughs> it might have been a couple of years later when I actually got a chance to see it. But that probably like, lo- unlocked my awareness of Coppola as a big deal director. And that's really him coming out of, including part three, this kind of down period, this kind of blue period um, in which he is taking on you know, these for hire jobs. Peggy Sue Got Married, Gardens of Stone. He makes the Tucker movie which is, you know, not super successful. None of these films are really all that successful. Um, mm-hmm. And I do there's remember some... loving Dracula. I do remember thinking it was dynamite. Yeah, there's something interesting about the, the 80s Copler as well, that it seems to be 1984, he drops the Ford. So like mm-hmm. this, this film, uh, yeah, uh, the Cotton Club through to Godfather, like Godfather uh, Part 3 is when he like, reinstates the, the Ford. It's like... I'm back, baby. And it's, I, I always like to think of the kind of way, like the psychology to that. Like, I don't know, is it like him kind of like being like, this isn't the, the same guy almost. Do you know what I mean, these are, these are like jobs for hire. Is it, yeah, there's it's something fascinated about that period. And obviously somebody who's like, not just a, not just a, a director he's a screenwriter as well and he's like kind of famed for writing his own scripts or adapting like his own his own stuff and that period like this film as well is is written by somebody entirely different he doesn't didn't have a hand in the script at all but on a on a you know, on a credit level at least yeah when i was when i was first really getting into movies and the idea of the filmography in the 2000s I probably was more harsh than I should have been about filmmakers like Coppola who went into these kind of down periods over time. But candidly, as I get into my 40s, and I think mm-hmm. Coppola was like 45 or so when he made this movie, I kind of get it. You know, your kids are a little bit more grown. You've been doing something for 20 years. Things are not as exciting to you as they used to be. Maybe three or four years ago, you had a moment where you felt like, wow, I was really at the top of my game, and now I don't really know how to get back to that. But I still got to pay the bills. I've still got this massive production company that I need to support, or I've got this villa, or I've got aging parents, or I've got all of these kind of responsibilities. And so for an artist who seemed to be really following his light, especially post-apocalypse now, where he's like, screw it, I'm doing one from the heart, I'm doing the Outsiders and Rumble together, I'm putting all of my chips down on the cotton club, he, you can feel him resetting mm-hmm. um, and taking things to, to pay some bills and to Maybe just reimagine how he wants to do the work that he does. Um, and it creates this kind of like, I don't know, like quasi-bland art that mm-hmm. I still think is really interesting. Like Gardens of Stone, I think, lacks 
strong point of view in part because of what you just said that he didn't write this movie and you don't necessarily feel like he has a deep emotional connection to this story. But there are a couple of moments in the movie, I think even of like a moment when Angelica Houston's character comes over at Jimmy Kahn's house for the first time, you can see like the camera kind of trailing Kahn throughout this tiny little apartment that he lives in where I'm like, this is way more advanced than some yes. workaday TV movie director would do. It's like he didn't have to like shoot Khan through the little cutout in his kitchen and then have the camera track back over the fireplace and the, the bookcase. And there's still moments where there is kind of great artistry happening sort of in silence. Uh-huh. Um, and so I'm always interested in looking at these kinds of work. It's like a lot less rewarding to look at The Godfather for me because there's nothing I can say about The Godfather. Yeah, that anyone hasn't heard a thousand times you know that's that's the exact problem i had like doing this podcast i was like i've got to put out an episode it's the 50th anniversary but it's like i'm 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 much more inclined to talk about one from the heart because it's like that's so 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 fascinatingly more interesting in the way that it's kind of this this folly right it's kind of somebody who has has spent like years in the jungle is like, oh, I'm going to lock myself in a tin can and direct from like a mobile home and try and, if I could, I would do this as one take and kind of do it as like a, it's like a live TV play. And it's like that, that's, I don't know. Yeah. The got the, like doing the research of the Godfather is like, I read like four books and I'm like, I've got too much information in my head to talk about this film. I can't like, unless I do like a 24 hour pod, there's no way I'm getting all this information out of my head. Yeah, I, it, it reminds me a little bit. I brought up my, my kid twice now, but I, I, it reminds me of having conversations with people about having a kid. Where uh-huh. I'm like, I don't, how do I have a thought here that is useful to you? Like, how do I share a reflection on the experience of becoming a parent that doesn't sound like the most banal, cliche crap? And I feel yep. the same way talking about The Godfather, where I'm like, oh, it's a story about America and families and the way that power is passed down and is distorted through history. It's like, uh, everybody knows. We know. The Godfather. <laughs> Gardens of Stone. How many people How many people have seen this movie? Yes. Less than a million? <laughs> like, not a lot of people have seen it. Yeah, I'm hoping people listen to this, um, this episode on name recognition of yours alone as, as opposed to have seen the film, uh, Sean. <laughs> Let, I'm sorry if I shanked you. You know, we could have done Apocalypse <laughs> now, but I just I wanted to do this. It's, it, it's fine well yeah let's let's have a deep dive into gardens of stone but before we do that let's listen to a beautiful vhs trailer i've pulled who is this guy uh, he's the best damn soldier on this post what's he doing here he did serve two tours in Nam, man. arlington national cemetery 1968 there was a war being fought ten thousand miles away willow here he uh, wants to go to vietnam feels that an infantryman's place at the time of war is in front. There ain't no front in Vietnam. Well, what's the story, General? We went into war in Vietnam like Westy says, huh? You want to go to Vietnam? A soldier in the right place at the right time can change the world. It was tearing apart the people at home. Yeah, I care about the United States Army. That's my family. Only what I got. And I don't like it when it's in trouble. Klaus sees this war as bad judgment. A screw-up. I see it as genocide. But I thought the best thing I could do for the army, my army, is to get snot noses like these ready for the inevitable. And that's why I want well, to teach. Clow! Sir, you just applied for a transfer and I denied it. TriStar Pictures presents a film from Francis Coppola. You know, this unit in Nam, they print up these little cards. They say, uh, killing is our business, business is good. Gardens of Stone. Well, here, burying is our business. Our business is better. 
It was a dangerous time to be young. Men come home crazy and broken and cold. An impossible time to be a hero. Not like the other wars. Hell, it's not even a war. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about you insane hollywood ass so to recap we're cutting the price of mint unlimited from 30 dollars a month to just 15 dollars a month give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch 45 dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees promote for new customers for limited time unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows full terms at mintmobile.com millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from noom like evan who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds salads generally for most people are the easy button right for me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Nothing to win. No way to win it. Gardens of Stone. A story about the other side of war. The war at home. Dear Sarge, hard to believe it's only a year. Feels like I've lived my whole life here. It's hard to believe you exist. Even Rach. It's so hard to believe that she still loves me, that there's any uh, love anywhere. I just want to hold her and hold her, and I'll be all right. Gardens of Stone with James Kahn, Angelica Houston, James Earl Jones. It's us and those like us. Damn few left. Gardens of Stone. And if you weren't sure, that was the trailer for Gardens of Stone, uh, which I think has a uh, <laughs> t- total count of about five times it's, it's said in that trailer. So some quick stats on the film. It was made uh, on, a, on a budget of $13 million with a box office return of Five million and some change. It so it didn't it didn't wash its face at the box office. Uh, it was released on May the eighth, nineteen eighty seven. Score was composed by Francis's own father, Carmine Coppola. Um, the DOP on this film was Jordan Cronworth. And uh, there's a few yeah there's a there's a there's a host of Coppola regular um, contributors and collaborators involved in the film, whether it's Dean Tavalaris with set decoration or Fred Roos is kind of go-to guy when it comes to casting. So, Sean, can you can you give us a synopsis for what Gardens of Stone is about? Sure. Uh, it's essentially a snapshot of the unit 
that manages Arlington National Cemetery, where um, uh, those who served in the armed forces in the United States are buried. Um, it's one of the most well-known cemeteries in all of America, and it features um, a young aspirant enlisted man, played by D.B. Sweeney, coming to terms with his desire to get into war in the face of a couple of men who've spent a lot of time dealing with war. Um, and he's essentially in a kind of training um, as he pushes to get to the front lines of a war in which, as James Kahn's character says, there are no front lines. James Kahn is um, a decorated major, I want to say, um, and or maybe perhaps a lieutenant. I can't remember what his rank is. And James Earl Jones is effectively his boss and his pal. And they oversee kind of like the, the, the decorative burials, the rituals of burial that happen at this, at this cemetery. And they, they train men in this space to kind of respect the power of the service. Um, and it's, it's kind of like a, it's kind of a soft soap opera, you know, the James, Con, the James Conn character meets a, a woman played by Angelica Houston, who's a Washington Post reporter. They kind of fall in love and that begins this affair. D.B. Sweeney's character, the young enlisted man, reunites with the girl that he was in love with and then they figure out if they're going to be together over time. And it's kind of this um, tangled story about like legacy and what we give to each other and what we take away from each other and the dutifulness that I think a lot of people who serve in the armed forces in the late 60s felt, even if they were in conflict with the idea of the Vietnam War. There's not a perspective you see that often, like about older soldiers not being for the war and it's all set against this very kind of stately like i said ritualistic world burial mm -hmm. so the, the the metaphors are not modest they're pretty in your face <laughs> um and the tone is very like i said can be very kind of dour um, it's not a very funny movie it's not very light on its feet um but it is it's seeking grace in a very ungraceful time in america which I find really interesting. Well, what I find fascinating is in that uh, on that indicator disc, Francis Ford Coppola talks about like what is a true anti-war movie. He says like you can't make an anti-war movie if you're kind of titillating the audience with like scenes of war. So he like it, his own admission, like he's like Apocalypse Now. That's not an like that can't be an anti-war movie in my eyes. Like that, like I'm I'm kind of playing to the cheap seats here, in regards to like I'm showing you the stuff you want to see. I'm showing the the, the napalming. I'm showing the kind of violence and the kind of. But I'm showing it. I don't know. He's he's got this. You can tell it's very much from this liberal, most like hippie eyes of like this isn't good. And it uh, and obviously ultimately it is um, hearts of uh, yeah. Heart, heart of darkness kind of set in in vietnam as a kind of uh backdrop but like he said gardens of stone from what he remembers is more true to being like an anti-war movie in the fact that it's kind of about the the fallout of war and the kind of people back home and the kind of like a lot of war movies kind of tend to forget about it's like we when we think of war movies, obviously, yeah, we think of kind of Saving Private Ryan and, you know what I mean, stuff that is frontline and kind of bombastic and stuff like that. And it's these more, you know, this is a bit more of a character study into what, what it's like. Yeah, and like you said about James Conn's character, what it's like to be at, be at home and be opposed to it, but 
also this is all you know like you kind of you're institutionalized into the the military and you're trying to i don't know you're trying to battle that internal struggle and the kind of um the ironies in this film as well like the inevitable fate of db sweeney's characters crushing it's, it's it's heartbreaking stuff but i don't think it lands but we can probably talk about that a bit more later yeah it's the the con character obviously is the fulcrum of the movie he's obviously the biggest star in the movie it's a reunion of sorts for Khan and coppola and one of the things that i like about the movie which i think is i think it's fair to say despite the fact that i wanted to talk about this is i agree with you it's ultimately unsuccessful I think the movie, uh-huh. you know, in, in a few ways, which is one of the things that makes it so relevant is that Coppola has these like wild swings that can be hugely successful, but he has very few like right down the middle pitches and like an anti-war movie in the mid eighties was very in vogue. <laughs> so it's yes. not, this is one year after platoon. It's one year before casualties of war. Like it's not like he was out on a limb here with the point of view that he was sharing. We kind of agreed as a nation that this was a terrible thing that we did for you know 10 12 15 years ago. So, but the con character is in this is kind of in the crosshairs of his own ideology because on the one hand in in at Arlington he's considered like a rebel who speaks out too much and has too much point of view about the the unnecessary and kind of vile nature of this war. But then he's forced to kind of defend the honor of the military and all of these kind of public functions that he attends. And in this moment, you know, this party that he goes to with Angelica Houston's character where he kind of punches out an anti-war, um, an anti-war activist who goads him on. And so it's basically, it's like every other Francis Ford Coppola movie. It's like, it's about a man in crisis. Like almost all of his movies are about these guys who have these deep moral dilemmas who are trying to work their way through how they feel about these things. Um, there are, of course, some exceptions to that. But for the most part, you know, he has plenty in common with uh, with Martin Sheen going down the river, with Michael Corleone, you know, with these people who have to make these critical decisions in their lives despite feeling the opposite way. Um, mm-hmm. It's a really interesting movie. The movie that the Vietnam movie that it reminds me the most of is Coming Home. That's probably one of the few movies that the Hal Ashby movie in the late 70s, Jane Fonda, John Voight, and Bruce Stern about exactly what you just described. Kind of the the I guess the the consequences of what happens mm. when you're done yeah. with the war, but the war's not done with you. And it feels similarly weighed down by a lot of that, that those ideas coming home has a, has some exultation in it. You know, um, even Bruce Stern's kind of like ultimate fate in that movie has a kind of like catharsis to it. Yeah. This movie doesn't really give you a lot of that. And I, I think like, to, to 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 pinpoint it like there's obviously a, a whole factor of reasons why this this film probably doesn't get off the ground and kind of work and i think the biggest one and we'd be remiss not to mention it is just the, the year previous like would i'd imagine it like the shooting of this his his son passed, passed away which obviously like mirrors the kind of thematic like elements of this film. like popular has talked about it and said the reason he kind of carried on with the film was just needed something to do like otherwise he would be at home kind of grief stricken and it's i don't know it's heartbreaking do you know what i mean and it's kind of like take that like you almost like want to go back and like say like do you know what i mean give him a hug and be like francis take this take this time out like do you know what i mean like not that 
not that it matters if you put out a shit movie because of it but like you should like this is this isn't it do you know what i mean this isn't this isn't the one this is what you should be doing right now yeah i find that aspect of it. he was supposed uh, gina carlo coppola was supposed to be in this film as well as was uh the gentleman who was responsible for the crash which like, took his life it's a it's a chilling story i mean you're mm. right that there is such clear not just thematic but almost specific echoes yes. um of losing a, a, a sort of like not just a surrogate son but an actual son in the middle of the production of this film you mentioned griffin o'neill who was had been cast in the film um who was responsible for the accident and then i think was later convicted of a manslaughter um, yeah. be- because of his role in the, the accident and at the same time Giancarlo's fiance was pregnant with Francis's soon-to-be granddaughter, Gia Coppola, who now a filmmaker herself. And then, you know, Coppola dedicates Tucker to his to his late son. And then there's a sequence in the film Twixt that is essentially like feels like a recreation of this death. And so this is such a signal event in Coppola's life. Obviously, a, the, the highest tragedy you can imagine: losing a child. And he's making a movie about loss, about coping yeah. with loss and about coping with the sort of like the generational frustrations and confusion and trying to like show people the way to understand, like, don't make the same mistakes that I made and be careful with your life and be thoughtful about spending time with the people that you love. So the movie has just got this huge anchor on it, this big emotional anchor um, that you can understand why he doesn't really have a ton of memories because if something like this happened to you, you would have... Mm-hmm blotted out this period of time in your life yeah. so it's it's unusual to think of someone such a great and well-known artist to be spending his time making something that he then like almost disassociates from for years and years and years well i i i think it's really fascinating that it's one from the heart right there's kind of like there is a kind of fork in the road in francis ford Coppola's career that it could have gone another way with that without that film kind of failing and the closing down of zoetrope studios it's kind of you can almost look in this multi multi uh yeah multiversal way of like kind of what could have Francis's career could have been if that film was a success or if that or if he had made some different decisions on that because it kind of feels like you say right up until Bram Stoker's Dracula that he's paying he's paying that back and it's it's that horrible feeling as well that like knowing that you kind of have to go to work even though you wish you could take the time off to grief do you know what i mean like he's kind of like like no no you need to you've got like do you know what i mean you've got the bank manager knocking on the door saying like hey you still owe us for, for that folly you had in 1981 i mean on the one hand we've all been there right like <laughs> yeah got it gotta pay gotta pay my rent yeah, gotta exactly. pay gotta gotta put food on the table gotta take care of things on the other it's always been one of the most fascinating parts of his career and his identity is as a person who took big risks, who yes. often put his own fortune on the line to make the things that he wanted to, often at cross purposes with his closest friend. You know, like Steven Spielberg and George Lucas, men who were kind of protégés in some respects to him, Lucas in yeah. particular, um, but he was older than them, he was more accomplished, he won an Oscar at a very you know, he was in his early 30s when he won his first Oscar. He had he made what most people still consider the greatest American film of all time. Once you've done that, right? You've won an Oscar at 31. You made The Godfather and The Godfather Part Two in your mid 30s. People are like, "You're set. 
you're set forever. Yeah. Like you never have to do another thing for the rest of your life and your legend is in stone. And to go cut 10 years later and you got to direct Peggy Sue got married, a movie that I like, that I think is a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but to have to make that movie because you got to do what you were describing, it's got to be kind of degrading. It's got to be like, um, got to be a little taxing. And even when you hear him talk now, I'm so interested in him now, you know, in his eighties mm-hmm. and kind of talking about how he has spent long swaths of his career. Like he still has regrets. He still has, not, not, maybe they're not regrets, but he still is doing that same sliding doors game that you're doing, which is like, if only this movie had been a hit, I wouldn't have had to spend this time doing this. Or if, you know, I, I he still can't get Megalopolis off the ground. So interesting. He's still like desperate to make this, this epic hundred million dollar science fiction life of the mind movie because he couldn't make it because he frittered away his power by taking great risks that were too big creatively that he wasn't ready to accomplish. So I don't know that boldness, that fearlessness is his best friend and his enemy. And so it makes him such a fun character in those three movies. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. He's kind of like, he was like the first over the kind of the top as it were, like, use like military metaphor especially for like the kind of cohort that he he's kind of known to be with like those movie brats it's like he's kind of he's a bit of that but like he was kind of doing it a bit more like do you know what I mean? he's, he was doing stuff in the 60s still he's kind of like yeah the first one over the wall kind of being like hey this is how it's done i remember like there's amazing stories of him quite early on saying like he would be doing these studio pictures and they did finian's rainbow for like warner brothers he would be kind of raiding the cupboards for like film stock and stuff like that so he could go out and film what he wanted to make. Do you know what I mean? He's like, hey, easy riders coming this way down the country. We're going the other way filming the rain people. It's like, let's kind of like, let's fuck shit up a bit and kind of like, let's go crazy with it. And it's like, it's, 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 it's amazing and fascinating to see the kind of ebbs and flows of his career throughout the years. And obviously, yeah, Megalopolis, if that, if that happens it will be like hey, netflix give him that money come on seriously what else are you spending your money on um it's funny <laughs> I, ju- I just saw dimension 13 for the first time this year i'd never seen it before which was his first movie and have you talked about it on this show not yet no 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 it's, it's okay. not, it's not, no nobody's picked it okay um i mean it, it, another movie that had been a little bit tricky to find um until it was i think it was reissued somewhat recently um on blu-ray and very short movie hugely economical kind of a classic Roger Corman thing where it's like a high concept genre movie executed on a very small budget. And you can see in that movie so much invention, you know, so much. I, I actually was just watching the first episode of, of new season of Atlanta and the opening scene in that first new season echoes the opening scene in dementia 13. And it, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if that's purposeful. I don't know if the Glover family was checking out Coppola's oeuvre, but, um, <laughs> You can see it's, this, it's the exact thing that you're describing, which is like, this is a risk taker. This is someone who's pushing it. This is someone who's scrimping and saving to get the most out of this experience all the way through, which is so different from this kind of steel-plated, economically-minded, Spielbergian vision of American greatness. You know, mm-hmm. like Spielberg is an amazing artist, one of my favorite directors. I wouldn't describe him as a risk taker. He yeah, obviously or, has has made films that are risky, but like, is he a risk taker? I, or, I don't. Or, yeah, or even like George Lucas. Do you know what I mean? Like, kind of. What was Francis Ford Coppola was like? Hey, I'll put my house on the line so you can make your experimental sci-fi movie, like with THX one one three eight. It's like he then goes on to like make 
Star Wars and is like, yeah. hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna really secure myself and get like the kind of you know what I mean, rights to the toys and stuff like that and kind of be set for life. Whereas Coppola's going, Hey, let's move to the Philippines for three years to make this movie, which I, I, I don't know how it's going to turn out, but uh, something something will come out at the end of it. Um, it's funny because I'm a, I'm I'm as obsessed with the movie Brats as anybody, and and that whole generation of filmmakers. I think I'm equally drawn to the men who have retained their heavyweight status as those who have kind of fallen into a second tier. Um, you know, I love the persistently persnickety rebel nature of De Palma and his, yes. his, his work throughout the years. I like how he seems like kind of a prick, you know, in an, in an appealing way. And same for Paul Schrader. <laughs> you know, I like how those guys are kind of ornery and they make what they want to make. And the studios are squeezing their necks. They'll find a way to kick out and do what they want to do. And if they don't, they won't work with that studio again. And I also love, I love Star Wars. You know, I, I love yeah. The, the kind of like I love that kind of crass commercialistic point of view that Lucas had to retain the rights to those characters. I, I think that's actually quite savvy and quite interesting, and I love those stories. Um, Coppola has always been kind of the bridge, right? He's always the middle character, mm-hmm. and he's the guy who could make big, bold commercial entertainments, but was always trying to do them desperately on his own terms, trying to reach as many people as possible, but not not sacrificing his idiosyncrasies for it. So this is like. This movie is not that. You know, this movie is like not a crowd pleaser. It's kind of weird that it would be considered a paycheck job. You know, most paycheck jobs, there's a kind of like, I don't know, like either moral depravity or like a genre element yes, or, yeah, you know, yeah. something high it's, concept or it's, it's, not, it's like it's aspect. a low tone. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's a low toned drama. That's it. Yeah, that, that, that is what's like fascinating about it. So I know that uh, Coppola said like, when he handed in the final film, producers said, "Like, oh, it's like it's not it's not emotion it's not emotional enough, and it's not involving enough." And obviously, like that can't like. What do you expect from a filmmaker who's kind of like his mind's probably his head's not probably in the game entirely? But like, what were what were they expecting? I I, I can only imagine that they were expecting like this really melodramatic. Do you know what I mean like really play for the cheap seat? kind of movie of like do you know what I mean like really weepy when we find out that um the willow character has died and stuff like that and a bit more broad and yeah what Coppola does something that is I would say the film is it's quite episodic it's just kind of like these snapshots of what it's like to be living at this time and kind of doing this job whether it's I don't know like and there are like there are I don't know. You get, you, yeah. You just get to know these characters over time. But, but I think where it falls down is sometimes you don't get to know them enough. And I think like DB Sweeney's doing his best, but I just don't think he's the right fit for this role. I, don't, I just don't think he's got the chops to kind of like really sell us that character. He's kind of, I don't know, like flying up from like naught to one hundred. Do you know what I mean? Like whether it's that scene when he's discussing with his old flame about like you still love me it's just out of nowhere and it's a bit like kind of jarring for an audience to watch whereas like there you feel like just i've been trying to rack my brain since watching it like who around this time would have been been great in that role i don't know would obviously just done platoon but like imagine like charlie sheen in like this kind of role really he sprung to mind well it's funny too because 
one of Coppola's great achievements in the 80s is the discovery of all of these incredible talents in yes. The Outsiders and, and, um, and Rumblefish. And so could Matt Dillon have done this? Could Tom Cruise have done this? Could Ralph Macchio have done this? I don't, I don't know. Maybe not Ralph Macchio, but you, you know what I mean. Like there, he was exposed to all of these really great 20-something actors. And Sweeney apparently, I mean, reportedly got Shoeless Joe in Eight Men Out based on this work, based on this performance. This is really his first big role. And he was, for those of you who were not our age, you know, he was, he was, uh, he was kind of a thing in the 90s, D.B. Sweeney. Yeah. You know, he was a guy. He was present, you know, like he was in some big, big-ish movies. Um, he's in a little over his head here, especially because every other actor, with the exception of Mary Stuart Masterson, is like a 50-year-old person who is incredibly good. And yeah. so there's so much more confidence in James Conn's performance, in Angelica Houston's performance, in James Earl Jones' performance. James Earl Jones and James Conn's characters, they are old friends, and they feel like old friends. Yes. You know, their, their, their connection in this, their, their chemistry in this movie is amazing. And the movie is kind of at its best when it's playing with that, when Dean Stockwell is kind of at loggerheads with Conn, or when you know, Conn and James Earl Jones are having dinner with their respective flames. And you're right to call it episodic, because it is just kind of a series of scenes in a lot of ways. And the movie does give away basically like what the conclusion of the film is in the opening minutes, which is a convention that would go on to become like very popular in movies, but was yeah. not as popular at this time. So it does feel like you're kind of, you're rowing to a destination you've already seen in yeah. a lot of ways. And so there's not a lot of dramatic tension in the movie. But I, I love it for the Con Houston, James Earl Jones parts of it. That's really yes. what sings. Yeah, I, lo I, I love like you said about that that dinner scene and there's something about like just James L. Jones. He just feels familiar. He, he feels like somebody, you know, and the kind of like just the, the way he's about. And he's kind of got those like sly comments to James Khan and kitchen. He's kind of, he, he really does reek of that person who is kind of like, ah, oh, I'm the guy at work who's telling the dirty jokes, but I'm on my best behavior for, for you right now and stuff like that. And I kind of, I really, I really love that. But Really, he's a really warm character, James Earl, and and for me as well. Like, I don't know, like it's it might be the stuff of James L. Jones that I've seen, but like it feels like a departure from what he's like readily known as for a lot of people. Do you know what I mean? People think Mufasa. People think uh, the the old guy from The Sandlot. People, do you know what I mean? People think the voice of Darth Vader. They don't. They don't tend to think. Uh, yeah, they don't tend to think of him being like the kind of I don't know. He's like a brash guy in this. He's not. He's not. He's not. He's not that archetype that you think of. Yeah, it's funny because he's he's in the middle of a period in which I think he's redefining himself as a an actor to audiences. You know, the John Sayles movie Matuan comes right after this, and he's coming coming to America as this kind of jovial king, mm -hmm. and then he's in Field of Dreams which I think like for someone my age is probably how I got introduced to him in addition to Star Wars, um, where he takes on a sense of like knowing grandeur. You know, there's a self-awareness to every character he plays. Like, I'm the guy in charge, but it, this is all kind of a joke a little bit. Um, he has this big stentorian tone, big guys, un unmistakable presence. Um, but he's mischievous in this movie, which is fun, you know? Yeah. Like, he's kind of waiting for the kids to go away so that he and his buddy can fuck around a little bit, which I enjoy. <laughs> Um, I mean, I think I ultimately like it because I'm an amateur James Canologist. You know, like I just, he's like one of my favorite movie presences in the history of movies. And this is one of those movies when I was going through his career, I like was always trying to find a way to see it. 
Because a lot of his movies in the 70s and then this, you know, he takes this big break in the 80s and then into the 80s are, are harder to find, I'll say. You know, like T.R. Baskin is not a movie that's playing <laughs> on, on Netflix, right? You know, Slither, the 1973 movie Slither is not available to watch, really, unless you rent it from Amazon. Um, Rabbit Run, which is like a huge adaptation of a massively successful novel. No one's seen that. You know, people have seen Brian's song. Maybe they've seen The Gambler, of course, The Godfather. Maybe, maybe they've seen Freebie and the Bean or Funny Lady. But like, this guy was one of the 10 biggest movie stars of the 1970s. Most of the movies he made don't have a huge critical reputation these days. He disappeared entirely from movies from like 1981 through 1987. And this was kind of a comeback for him. Yeah. And it wasn't that successful, but it paved the way for Alienation, Dick Tracy, and then Misery in which he becomes like at the center of Hollywood again, yeah. the, the success of that movie. Um, and he's a really weird actor. He's like this <laughs> born Jewish guy who's like a bruiser. Like he looks like he'd beat the shit out of you in a bar. Yeah. And yet he's always playing against type. He's so against type in this movie. He's so like kind yeah. of tender and intellectual almost. And of course he like, you know, he throws some fisticuffs, but for the most part, like I said, he's this man kind of at cross purposes. He's trying to figure out like what, how he really feels about the world and what he's spent his life doing. And it's such a, like, I don't, it's such, I guess he said in interviews that he wanted to raise his son for, you know, five or six years. And that's why he kind of stepped out of movies. But what a weird way to come back. You know, it's like, it's so anti-archetypal. I, I think the last, it's, it's, it's reported as well that the last film he worked on uh, before he took that break. He had such a bad time as well that he kind of like, was like, oh, I'm kind of done, done with this for a bit. And it's something must have spoke to him. And I imagine like reading this script as well, like you're saying he's got a son, like reading that kind of, and that's something that beats throughout this. Like I've got a, I've got a three-year-old son and it's like anything with like a kind of, if father, son, father, daughter, anything that kind of like uses that like device in films, I'm like, ah, oh, like, like, much to my dismay, like when my son was first born, watched Daddy Daycare, and it's a film that, like <laughs> any other time, because like you know, young like baby brain, you just like let's put something on. You know what I mean? Like, any, like there's, there's, Netflix is on. Let's put something on. And I found myself crying just because I was like, I don't want to be this dad who's like neglecting his son and stuff like that. So like anything that's got that, and like I again like to kind of echo something I said earlier. That that's kind of what's ultimately you know, disheartening about this film somewhat is that like it kind of slightly misses the mark on making the emotional punch with that kind of I think it is like the kind of yeah when it gets to D.B. Sweeney's kind of death it's kind of like I don't know just kind of handed on and kind of passed off do you know what I mean like if, if you kind of looked away for a second you could kind of, do you know what I mean the, the way it's shown is James Kahn wrecking a break room and then it's shown to the camera on on a piece of paper like he's on a deceased list and it's not till like he goes home and discusses it with uh, Angelica Houston's character that we really get like it fully as an audience it's like oh, it feels like that moment should have been bigger and I, I, I know he's probably like I don't know that's when it should have played for the cheap seats a bit like just to kind of get that that punch and that emotional reaction out of people yeah, I wonder if he, if Coppola is purposefully trying to be restrained or if he is just sort of disinterested, you know, mm. that he is there, that became something mechanical about the making of this movie at a certain point. Because 
you're right. Like it doesn't land hard in ways that you think it should. And some of that I think is the structure of the movie. Some of that is the, the beats of the film. Um, I, I think his, his father's score is a little bit muted, honestly, yes. um, for a film that should probably have like some big soaring kind of military, you know, tribal aspect to it. Like it's not, it's not quite at that level. But like you said, I mean, this is also, this is Jordan Cronenworth. This is the guy who shot Blade Runner. This is one of the great cinematographers of the 1980s. It's, uh, it's, it's Dean Tavalaris, like you said. Like it, it, it looks good. Everything on paper is right. And yet somehow there's just something missing and hard to not chalk it up to, understandably, everything that was going on in his life and the kind of the idea of like having to cope with coping during, a, during, a, during work, you know, during like a mechanical process. So it's 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 such a such an odd movie, and it feels like it, I I always wonder if it was like kind of purposefully buried in a way, you know, mm-hmm. like if it once it once it didn't succeed, there was a hope that it would be like, let's just kind of pretend like that one never happened. I'm always interested in that kind of movie that doesn't have that big. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. That is kind of a fascinating aspect to it, and like 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 we've said, like Opala kind of doesn't really remember the film. Is. But yeah, that that, that featurette on uh, the publicator disc is it's quite hard to watch because you can tell like there's a lot of heartache kind of surrounds this film, and they kind of the final question is is asking him like why did he continue making it? What was going on at home? It's like 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 I don't know like and that it is I don't I, I I'm interested to watch it again though. That is that. That is one thing. Like, because I've, I've, I find it wholly fascinating. Like, yeah, like these periods of like people's careers that don't work. And one of the things I wanted to discuss with you obviously, is like somebody who's a massive film fan and kind of like you said, like you're interested in the movie brats. Is what the movie brats were kind of doing at this time? Because it kind of really seemed like a slump for all of them, right? Yeah, I I mean, some of them are kind of not entirely i mean obviously you've got the indiana jones franchise is going pretty strong with spielberg mm-hmm. and lucas at this time this is mid 80s is right raiders temple of doom last crusade all in a row they're all hits and so they're thriving because they're a little more craven you know they're making mass entertainment so that's been yeah. then we already talked about that uh scorsese of course is in this quote-unquote down period in which i think he's making really interesting movies this is, you know, kind of the after hours period where I think he's trying to figure out and he takes a paycheck job a couple of years later in the color of money it is much more successful, mm-hmm. extremely vital, you know, based on a novel IP that was not in his control, big movie stars already attached that he has to deal with, but he brings his energy, his style, his power to that movie in a way that is really invigorating. Um, Schrader is in a is I think is actually making some really good work that is like a little bit overlooked. It's like Patty the Patty Hearst movie is in this time, um, which I think is very underseen. Uh, Comfort of Strangers is coming in a couple of years. There's a few movies in the '80s, you know, Light Sleepers to come. Like he has this kind of revival in the early '90s that I think is pretty exciting. But it's harder and harder for these guys to get money to make movies because the studios have kind of moved on from them. They're difficult. They have strong points of view. They're trying to make transgressive art inside of a big system. We're now in the heady days of Lethal Weapon and Die Hard and Beverly Hills Cop, and that's really what's Ocaron at that time in, in Hollywood. Um, 
you know, there's a number of other people. Like Bogdanovich is trying to make his way back into the world with masks and stuff like that. They're all taking yeah. paycheck jobs. They're all taking jobs to make money, to get back on the good side of executives so that then they can scrap together enough money to make passion projects. Um, yeah. In Scorsese's case, it's less temptation, right? There's like, they all have their thing that they want to do uh-huh. that they can't do because they got to make more money to prove to people <laughs> that they're not flame outs from the 1970s. So it's such a funny time for all of them. I'm trying, I mean, Altman is in like the ultimate down period for him. Yes. He's making TV movies at the time. Uh, he's making, I, I like some of those movies come back to the five and dime Jimmy Dean and, and um, streamers is around this time. Like he's got a bunch of films that are, are the least seen of all of these guys' movies. They're fun to excavate. More often than not, I think, give or take in After Hours, a lot of that stuff is better left, like, less examined than the uh-huh. classics. The classics are still, are still there for a reason. But what they do is, and we just did an episode of the Rewatchables on the player, they do inform what you get on these big comebacks. And almost all of these directors, within the next 20 years, they get a comeback, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Scors- Scorsese's is a never-ending comeback. Like he's been on now for 25 years, and it's <laughs> just like the, the the grand monsignor of, of cinema. But you like, look at, yeah, you look at De Palma around this period. He's kind of like on a like I don't know. He's just come off of the Untouchables. Like it would have been the same year as this, right? So yeah, he would have done that. But then his career takes a bit of a downswing. Obviously, like commercially, like Casualties of War isn't kind of like big hit as he's expected bonfire vanities that's a whole nother podcast in itself uh, <laughs> literally um, there are entire podcasts about it yeah 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 yeah. yeah 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 fantastic book as well uh but like yeah it's that kind of early 90s that they kind of all kind of really leave their statement piece of like and what's interesting about De Palma is somebody like cover cover over on patreon as like a little uh just looking at the movie brats and how they compare to Francis Ford Coppola it's, that early De Palma run, kind of like he returns to, I don't know, I guess Scorsese does the same thing. They return to a world that they know really well to kind of like, yeah, like De Palma does it with, you can kind of argue Carlito's way. He kind of goes back to what he did with like Scarface and then uh, Raising Kane. He kind of like goes back to the, the film De Brian De Palma almost of like kind of let's give you a fucking like trippy Hitchcockian nightmare of a movie and it's yeah I find, I find it interesting and then hey, Coppola feels like he's taking a wild swing with Bram Stoker's Dracula it's kind of like it doesn't feel like Coppola still like that's like, he's kind of is like this outlier of that group he's uh, it's fun well what, uh, in fairness he does make the Godfather Part Three, which is yes, the return. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sure. that's the big paycheck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, 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 that's that's him going back literally to what launched him, what elevated him to a class all his own. Um, Coppola is, and this is you, you'll see that you see this in the offer, the, the TV series that is coming up soon. You know, he he prides himself on being a very literate man, you know, on, mm-hmm. on understanding Greek and Roman mythologies and Shakespeare and the classics and uses those as kind of tent poles for a lot of his ideas. The Godfather is called on Lear and you know the idea of the great king. And so it's it's actually not that surprising that he would take something like Dracula, which is considered a, a good work of fiction, maybe not a yes. great work of fiction, but it is a is a is a well respected piece of writing, and try to elevate it. And Gardens of Stone is a novel and try to elevate it. He's he's considered like one of the most literate of all of these filmmakers. Um 
but he's unpredictable. You know, mm-hmm. he's always doing stuff that you're like, you're doing that. Like if you look at Twixt and Tetro and all of these movies that he's made in the last years, they're all so strange. You know, they're all such they're such they're quest movies where he's trying to figure something out in real time. Gardens of Stone feels a little bit like him trying to figure something out, how he feels about a period in history, how he feels about these relationships, even if the movie doesn't originate with him. He takes parts to investigate. Peggy's Peggy Sue Got Married is about investigating nostalgia, sliding doors Definitely, yeah, yeah. that you make. You know, this movie is about investigating fathers and sons, like you say, and you know, that bond and the complexity of those bonds and war and how we feel about war. And he wasn't really making movies about war when the war was happening. It wasn't until after the war ends, really, that he starts to dig into Apocalypse Now. Um, so I don't know, it's always interesting the way that he he shifts. Yeah. So um is there anything that we should like that we've missed in regards to Garden Stone that you wanted to touch on at all, Sean, before we start to wrap things up. Um, it's a really good Angelica Houston performance. It is, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You That's know, it. and there, there's a story uh, that like he was originally going to cast Michelle Pfeiffer in the film, but that he thought she was too beautiful, and that he then has to kind of correct himself and say, "Well, Angelica is kind of eccentrically beautiful, <laughs> and doesn't want to insult her in any way." And this is right after Pritzi's honor. Um, and she's kind of establishing herself as not just John Houston's daughter and not just Jack Nicholson's sometime partner, but as like a real powerhouse actor. Um, you know, she's got crimes and misdemeanors and the grifters to come and she's about to become like a really a big deal actress in Hollywood. This is a much quieter performance from her. Um, very strange part, little underwritten part. We don't totally understand who this woman is. We just know yeah. that she's like an anti-war reporter, but, um, it's, I, I would recommend it for her too. Cause it's really, it's a really good part. Aside from that, I don't know, what a weird movie, man. What a strange journey for Coppola at this stage of his life. Yeah, it's kind of, it's, it's almost interesting more to talk, uh, talk around the film than the film itself. Because it, as I said, it's definitely a curio to, to check out if you're a kind of completionist or, yeah, whether you're a Khan completionist or Coppola completionist to kind of check it out. And it's, I don't know, I think it, when doing the research about what was going on in his life, it's kind of has a bit more of like an emotional punch to the film, kind of knowing that. It's it's one of those rare times that knowing that stuff kind of does inform the work. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, that's I mean, you can hear my brain talking. It's like better for a podcast than it is for a movie night. You know what I mean? You don't want to get the family all together with a big bowl of popcorn and watch Gardens of Stone together. It's not that kind of movie. Um, it's more of a curio, you've got to be on an exploration for one of those key figures in the film. But it is, it, is a, it is a Rosetta Stone that informs a lot of where he goes with his career. I mean, I think a lot of the tragedy in Godfather Part Three is informed by what happened during the making of this movie. I think a lot of the stories that he tells in the future is informed by that stuff. So if you want to better understand him, it's worth seeing. Definitely. definitely. Well, uh, yeah, as we wrap things up, Sean, I always ask my guests, is there any Coppola connections in this film? Are there people who worked on this film or in this film who worked with Coppola? Or any of the Coppola family elsewhere in their career? Gosh, must be. I should have prepared more deeply for this one. Do you know, I mean, well, you've, you've mentioned all the below-the-line people, of course, who have been working with them yeah, yeah. For, for, for years and years and years. <sighs> Help me I've, out here. Help me out. Is I've, there any? So, obviously, we've got Jimmy Calm. is obviously in The Rain People, The Godfather, Godfather Part 2. And Honeymoon in Vegas with Nick Cage a few years later, where it's kind of... I, Yes, I'd completely forgotten about that. Okay. He's doing, he's doing what is it, PG, uh, Indecent Proposal, basically. Uh, Angelica Houston worked with Coppola 
a year or so before this for like a, a short film called Captain EO, where she uh, acts alongside Michael Jackson. I think it's some it's something that is near on impossible to find in the UK. I'm not sure if it's uh, readily seen in the US. Let me tell you a little something about Captain EO. I've seen Captain EO and I saw it in person at Epcot Center at Disney World in 1986. In fact, I visited Disney World with my family and one of the star attractions was Captain EO. And um, I remember loving it. Uh, The way the world saw Michael Jackson at that time was significantly different and he was by far the biggest star in the world starring in a short film directed by Francis Ford Coppola at Disney World. (laughs) <laughs> um, I remember it being great. I don't. I don't. Rec- I don't recollect Angelica Houston being a part of it at all, though. Yeah, she, like she's on the cast list. So uh, I mentioned, it. and obviously she's she's in part worked with uh, Roman Coppola with the uh, the Life Aquatic with Steve Sissou, which he shot second unit for the Zargiling Limited with Jason Schwartzman, as well as the French Dispatch being the narrator in that film. There's a connection there. Mm-hmm. Dean Stockwell in CQ. Uh, Roman Coppola's directorial debut in Mr. Wrong, uh, which John Schwartzman was the DOP, Tucker, the man and his dreams as well. Obviously, Francis made the year after this. This is why you're you. I am Charlie Day in, uh, <laughs> with that wall full of string and yeah, 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 yeah. The pin board, yeah. Yeah, cigarette in my mouth kind of. A couple of connected like this. And there's there's a lot more. So like, yeah, Elias Cotus is in Tucker and he's also okay. in Simone, the uh Al Pacino movie, which again John Schwartzman was DOP. Larry Fishburne, who I think he was known as Larry at this time, right? It wasn't until Boys in the Hood that he 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 changed it to Lawrence Fishburne. That's uh, a fact. obviously has had yeah, it's had a stellar career with Francis Ford Coppola, whether it's Apocalypse Now, Rumblefish, the Cotton Club. And he worked with Nicolas Cage uh, just 2018 in a film called Running with the Devil, which uh, sits happily on Netflix at the moment, I believe. So <laughs> you, you, you did an episode on that film, did you not? I did, yes. And what was your takeaway from that film? Um, Adam Goldberg plays a really good like piece of shit. Like, <laughs> like, <laughs> Typecasting, yeah. <laughs> and uh larry fishburne has some real baggy boxes in it that's, what, that's one of the takeaways i've got from that movie and somebody has clearly watched a lot of tarantino and breaking bad and went i'll write a movie okay all right so <laughs> i should should i seek that one out on netflix i don't think so i don't okay. think so i think, right, I think okay. you could skip it um so let's rate this movie sean and how we do that on this podcast is i ask my guests what would be the perfect wine pairing for this film? I feel like you want to have a nice juicy lamb loin, you know, something kind of sturdy and steady to fill you, you know, maybe a little <laughs> bit of blood on the table, you know, a little bit of thinking <laughs> about heritage and, and um, some weight and some mass behind it. You want to, you want to walk away feeling nourished, like your iron is up. And uh, a bit of strength. This is not like a light movie. It's not. It's not a. It's not a. And it's not a sandwich of a movie. You know, it's, <laughs> it's not. It's not an on the go kind of a thing. You got to sit down and and soak in it. You yeah, got to yeah, marinate. You have a whole bottle. You got. You got to pop that cork, and it's. We're not stopping until the bottle's drunk. Kind of. Kind of. Kind of affair. 
Yeah, but so did, uh, what is like a Barolo? What kind of a wine are we talking about here? You know, something that has a deep flavor. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking. I'm thinking like a nice deep red, like which obviously uh, ties back to the film. That's what that's what James Kahn offers Angelica Houston when she first comes to his apartment. I don't know something that's got like a kind of maybe like a kind of uh, trying to think like a, a slight spice flavor to it because it's got like mm. an element of. Uh, eccentricities to the film whether, like whether it's like i don't know it feels like stuff that's peppered in by coppola in regards to like the fact that james khan is just this persian rug like uh collector it just feels like a weird like kind of character trope to i do love that I, I i neglected to mention that but i do love that quirk of his and the fact that he has such a level of specificity because of his world travels so i mean is it like a Syrah, a mavedra or like what are we what kind of deep red are we talking about here this is not a this is not a pinot noir kind of a film no 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 this is uh, this is something a bit i don't know a bit off menu i reckon this is my, my wine knowledge you, you've named a load of wines no idea what you're talking about sean <laughs> <laughs> well i have having visited uh coppola's winery um spent some time there uh i can tell you that um most of the good wines are not on offer He's keeping those for himself. He's got nice. those deep in the cellar, and I don't have access to them because I'm not a millionaire. <laughs> so let's move on to the next question, which is, how much are you paying for this wine? Is it a bottom shelf, middle shelf, or top shelf wine? Hard to get a cheap Mavedra. You know, you can't, there's no $9 bottle of that. So I, it has to be a middle shelf wine, I would say. It's yeah. like a $25 bottle, $30 bottle. Um, but it's not high end. It's far from high end Coppola. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're not you're not turning the page on the wine menu. Do you know what I mean? You're still on the first page. Like you're not very much so. Very yeah. much so. And it's like, but it's not at the top of the list. Mm-hmm. Kind of mid list. Yep. So and you know the the sommelier would say peppery but plummy, I would say, is really kind of where they're going with this. Perfect. Perfect, Sean. Um yeah. Uh, so, based on this film alone, are the Coppola's the greatest film family of all time? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, not based on this film alone. Um, in totality, in looking at the archive of your show, perhaps yes. But I mean, this is a this film, paycheck job, mid '80s downtime movie for a great filmmaker figuring out what his next chapter should be. So, no. <laughs> definitely definitely i can agree with you more (laughs) um so let's wrap this up and i I always like to end this with two impossible questions uh first one being which coppola family member would you keep but in doing so you get rid of the entire filmographies of the rest of the family easy one for me um i i i keep francis Uh, i think francis has given me the most out of all the, the, the Coppola connections. But I'd be sad to lose Cage, Sophia, and Schwartzman. I love I love brought to me. Especially because those are really more contemporary figures. Those are people yeah. that I didn't have to discover. They've just been in space since I've been coming of age. Um, but I mean, Francis, do people say not Francis Ford Coppola when, when you ask them that question? What do they say? Yeah, people do. People, pe- some people hold... Do people say step- Roman? No, not yet. But- <laughs> okay. 
I'm sure I'm waiting for the Roman heads to get at me. Okay. What about <laughs> what about Gia? Do they go with Gia? No, I don't think she's made enough of a mark on cinema yet. I'm not sure. If so what do they there's... they say? Nick. They must say Nick. Nick's a big one. Francis. A lot of the time, people say Francis because they they I don't know they get outside of themselves and don't go selfishly. They go like oh because of what he's done for cinema and stuff like that. And it's like that's not what this show's about. This is about like speak from your heart, speak your truth. I don't I don't want to hear like the head head game here. I want to hear the heart. No head game necessary. I mean, did you have you seen The Godfather? I mean, Jesus Christ, what a wonderful movie. Yeah, I, that's that's that would Francis is my pick for very obvious reasons. Yes, perfect. Um, and uh, I always like to end on, what does Bill Murray say to Scarlett Johansson at the end of Lost in Translation? The wine is peppery and plummy. <laughs> that is perfect, Sean. Well, uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and making some couple of connections with me. Where can people find you and everything you do with The Ringer and uh, Big Picture? Yeah, you can find The Big Picture wherever you get your podcasts. Hope you listen on Spotify, but if you don't, I understand. Mm-hmm. Um, you can hear me on the Rewatchables. I'm on that show with some frequency. You can hear me on the Prestige TV podcast. Uh, I'll actually be talking about the show Barry this season with Bill Hader every week, um, which should be exciting. And I don't know. I'm on the internet. I'm online. You can find me. Just Google me. I'm, I'm thrilled to have been here. Thank you so much for asking me. Thanks for giving me room to stretch out on a movie that I will never be allowed to talk about into a microphone ever again. I really appreciate it. And I think your show is really cool. Thank you so much, Sean. And there we have it, guys. Gardens of Stone is checked off of the list. And a massive thank you once again to Sean Fennessy for coming and joining me. This was really like a kind of dream come true for me. As I kind of said in the intro, I'm a massive fan of Sean's work and it always amazes me that people are willing to take a punt. Obviously, you get an email from some random guy on the internet and they're like, hey, yeah, let's let's do this. And uh, what an amazing pick as well. It's a fascinating film. And I think uh, I think we, got, we went to some amazingly fascinating places in this conversation. I, I, I do hope you agree. If you do agree or if you don't agree, uh, uh, always feel free to hit me up on all the socials. So that is Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Letterboxd, and TikTok. All at CagedInPod. Or you can drop me an email, which is CagedInPod at gmail.com. As for next week on the podcast, I'll be joined by Chris Johnston of the Easy Riders Raging podcast and the Spielberg pod to discuss the Jason Schwartzman story by and Roman Kobler story by film Wes Anderson's The French Dispatch from 2021. One, it was a fantastic conversation. We get into our gripes about the film, our mutual love of montages, and so much more whilst trying to pick apart the anthology uh, movie that is The French Dispatch. 
If this is your first time listening to the podcast, or if you've been listening for a while, if you enjoyed it, please be sure to head on over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this right now, and leave a rating, review, and subscribe. Subscribe to the bloody podcast. Uh, be, become a part of the gang, yeah. And when you leave your review for the podcast, please be sure to let me know what you think Bill Murray says to Scarlett Johansson at the end of Lost in Translation. Uh, more on that maybe next week. Uh, yeah, I, th- I think I think uh, la, 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 la. I, th- I think there's some exciting stuff. Uh, uh, no, there isn't any exciting stuff to announce yet because I think I'm holding back on Lost in Translation for a much later episode. If you would like to support the podcast by giving me a little bit of money, you can do so by heading over to Patreon.com forward slash caged in pod where you can get access to our brand new series movie brat bros where we are on season one and looking at the films of the one the only brian de palma there's some uh, there's about six episodes up there right now and they're a lot of fun you get the access to that for as little as two pound fifty a month it's like three dollars if that a month and it's uh yeah it's a great little series it's more of a kind of discussion i normally have two guests on that and we kind of yeah really uh go over the toss of brian de palma we 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 chat about the films it's a, it's a bit like this but but different it's uh and uh, we always end every episode by having a look at what francis ford coppola was doing at that that period so we would have discussed uh, this very film briefly and looked at who had a better year uh, brian de palma or francis ford coppola uh, with the untouchables episode with uh, rich nelson of the do you want me podcast which is a yeah a fantastic episode so do be sure to head on over to patreon and join that so guys as always i've been petrus pat syllabus your guide through the crazy world of the Coppola family tree. Remember to keep it caged in and I'll catch you next time. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This podcast is presented by the Breadcrumbs Collective, home of the Pod Charles Cinecast, Caged In Coppola Connections, a Town Limerie, Maine, Franchised, and many more to come. Our shows are all presented ad-free and made possible by listeners like you. Please support our shows by subscribing, leaving ratings and reviews, and becoming patrons at patreon.com. If you'd like to learn more about Breadcrumbs, head over to breadcrumbscollective.com. Breadcrumbs. It's more than a podcast network. It's family.